When I was um, in the business world before becoming a pastor, I remember that at one of the business development seminars uh, that I attended, a business coach once talked about how bad the fear was. The fear was bad. The fear stops us from getting out of our comfort zone and halt our personal and professional growth. So this coach even made the word fear into an acronym, which stands for false expectations appearing real, F-E-A-L. So after learning this fear thing, I, I, I got so pumped up, and I tried to apply it on someone else. So, one of my immediate household member, well, I only have one, which is my wife. And, and that person, that household member, is really afraid of the animals. She fears animals, any kind of animal, as long as it's not cooked. So, so one time that we went to visit a friend, and when I rang the bell, actually before I rang the bell, we heard a very loud barking voice. Like, I mean real barking voice from a real dog inside. And immediately, and it's literally immediately, my wife disappeared. I was like, I never know you can teleport. Anyway, she went into our car in a split second. And I went back to try to ask her to come out. Well, we were there to visit a friend. But what I found was that she actually locked the door. I mean, the dog doesn't know how to open the door. Why would you need to lock it? And then she said, heartbreakingly, that locking the door wasn't against the dog. So who else? So it was against me from exposing her into potential danger. So I sweat. And, and then I, 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 I used my recently acquired knowledge about fear, and I told her, fear is only false expectations appearing real. And then she responded, yeah, until it bites you. So after all, fear is not necessarily a bad thing. In fact, fear is a God-given gift for us because fear is a vital response to physical and emotional danger. If we don't feel it, we cannot protect ourselves from legitimate threats. And fear is even more vital from a spiritual sense than physical and emotional. Only with a proper sense of spiritual fear that we can sense what kind of spiritual danger we are in and what remedy must be taken when we cannot save ourselves from those spiritual threats. The Bible says that without a proper sense of fear to God, we will become foolish or worse, evil. Fear is one of the most proper feelings when a sinful human being encounters the holy 
majestic and all-powerful God. That's why the first thing the prophet Isaiah said when he saw the glorious throne of God, what he said was, Woe to me! I'm ruined! He didn't say, Hey, buddy, what's up? No, that's not what he said. He said, Woe to me, I'm ruined! For I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Almighty Lord. So a proper sense of fear towards our holy God would help us correctly assess our true conditions, that we have sinned against God and will lead us to seek proper remedy, which is the grace, the mercy, the forgiveness, and salvation of God. If we don't fear God, we would be blind towards our sin and it will undermine greatly our need and appreciation of God's grace and mercy. Fear of God is no longer false expectations appearing real, but it's actually forgiveness essentially and absolutely required. This proper sense of fear towards our holy God will bring us into the world of Psalm 1. So let's take a look of what this God-fearing world looks like. I'm going to ask Willis to lead us uh, and to read this uh, six verses to us. Thank you. Blessed is the one who does not walk in step with the wicked, or stand in the way that sinners take, or sit in the company of mockers, but whose delight is in the law of the Lord, and who meditates on his law day and night. That person is like a tree planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in season, and whose leaf does not wither, whatever they do prospers. Not so the wicked, they are like chaff that the wind blows away. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. For the Lord watches over the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked leads to destruction. Thank you, Willis. Let us all pray together. Dear God, give thanks to you for this wonderful song that has been speaking to generations after generations about how fear of you should be. So may your words today guide us into the path that you desire on us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So out of the 150 Psalms in the collection in the Old Testament, Psalm 1 is quite unique. In case you're not aware of it, the book of Psalms, as we know it, has gone through an an extensive editorial work to become what it is. The editor, or editors, inspired by the Spirit, had strategically and theologically arranged all these Psalms into five main books within the collection. The most common category of Psalms, not so surprisingly, is actually laments. Also popular among the Psalms are songs of thanksgiving, adoration, and and to lesser extent, confessions. But for the opening Psalm of the entire collection, Psalm 1 is neither a lament nor thanksgiving, but a wisdom song. And what is also known to be a song of Torah, or the song of the law. 
For a collection of psalms, which is used extensively for worship purpose, it actually begins with a song of the law. This arrangement carries an abundance of spiritual meaning. Think about this. No matter how many songs of praises we sing, no matter how many words of thanksgiving we speak, and no matter how many confessions we make, if we don't respect the law of God, if we don't fear God for who He is and who we are, then all the singing or worshipping will become meaningless. In other words, if we do not take the teaching in Psalm 1 seriously, then even if you continue to read the rest of the 149 Psalms, you're still reading it superficially. And still nothing is happening inside your heart. A God-fearing attitude makes sense of everything we do as, as a church. Without it, everything we do, our singing, our praying, our serving, our fellowshipping, would become hollow or even hypocritical. If we do not fear God, we would then not pay much attention or show much respect to His revealed will. So if we don't fear God in our lives, we are essentially practicing, using a technical term, applied atheism. We are using our living style and behavior to proclaim that there's no God, at least no God worth following or obeying. So reflect on our, let's reflect on our lives. Are we living a life worthy of the calling we have received? Or are we living a life proclaiming atheism? That's why I hope that Psalm 1 will help us reorient our lives so that we will take fear of God seriously. However, to fear God is not a set of skills that we can acquire through practices. To fear God is an attitude within a relationship. In chapter 13 of Deuteronomy, God described this relational attitude as this. It is the Lord your God you must follow, and Him you must revere. Keep His commands and obey Him. Serve Him and hold fast to Him. In this verse, God describes fear or revere of Him as keep His commands and obey Him. And this is exactly what the first psalm intends to exalt us. The first line of Psalm 1 which is also the first line of the entire book of, of, the, of the Psalms, is this. Blessed is the one who does not, first, walk in the step within the wicked, or stand in the way that sinners take, or sit in the company of mockers. In this line, we are confronted with the fact that God has very high moral expectations on us. His children. This expectation, this command, does not just lie on our behaviors, but also our mindset, our attitude, our value system. From this line, it mentions a few things that a God-fearing person won't do. Those include walking, standing, and sitting. These three verbs are, in, in fact, a series of continuous actions. At first, it's just walk. You're walking. You're in motion. However, you become increasingly attracted in the path you're walking on. 
So you stop. And you just stand there. You are trying to get yourself more established there. But that's not enough. As you become too obsessed with, the, with this path, this wicked path, you eventually take a seat and settle down. It becomes home. This is exactly the opposite of what a God-fearing person would do. If you start walking on this wicked path, you will eventually find yourself getting too attached to it. And it will make a detour less and less possible. The first verse of Psalm 1 describes a picture of increasing corruption and increasing attachment to evilness. This description not only can be seen from these three verbs, but also can be found in these three nouns, namely, step, way, and company. Well, first, the step, the word step, is more commonly translated as counsel, advice, or plan. So this word is more associated with thoughts which have not yet turned into action. The next word, way, on the other hand, can also be translated as custom or manner elsewhere in the, in the Old Testament. So it applies, it implies actions and a set of behaviors. This is more serious because plans have now become practices. But worse is the third word, company, which is more commonly translated as home or dwelling elsewhere in the Old Testament. It means that in this stage, you don't just do what the people do. You have become one of them. Taken their path as your home. Plans, which have become practices, have now formed a partnership. This is like someone, someone trying to become a lawyer or accountant. Well, I, I'm in no way implying they're wicked, okay? An, energy, uh, an, an analogy, take it easy. It's like, when you want to become such professional, you would first learn all the necessary knowledge first. It's in your mind. It's just ideas in your head to begin with. But that's not enough. You need practice. So you would become an intern in a firm to put your plans and ideas into action. But still, that's not the goal. The goal is to eventually become a partner of the firm with your name on the wall saying that this is your home. You and the firm are tied together. Now, if we have grasped the essence of this verse, we need to pay attention on the most important word on this line, which appears actually three times in this verse in original Hebrew. It's the tiny Hebrew word lo. L-O, lo. And it is translated as not in English. Walk not in steps with the wicked. Stand not in the way the step sinners take. And sit not in the company of mockers. The wisdom of this song of the law is for us to say no. Not only saying no to be a partner of wicked, not only saying no to practice sin, but also to say no to any corrupt thoughts and ideas. 
That's how a God-fearing person should be. And we need to pay special attention here because this psalm of Torah has taught us, in fact, the whole Bible has taught us the same concept. That's our proper attitude towards sin should not only be trying not to sin. No. But in fact, we should always change our mindset to, to be away from sin. Do not sin. And as far away from sin as possible can be two very different mindsets. But unfortunately, many of us Christians are not too aware of such difference. Do not sin. And away from sin can be two very different attitudes. Let's make an illustration. Let's assume that sin can be measured or quantified. In reality, we cannot do that. But let's assume that we can for the sake of this illustration. Let's say that we can quantify sins and the 50-point mark is the dividing line. So, if you score, if your score falls below 50, you have sinned. And trust me, we, we all tend to think that way. If your score falls below 50, you have then sinned. So, if the goal is to try not to sin, then all you need to score is 50 or higher. Like 51 points would be acceptable because you have not sinned. It's not a sin at 51. You're good. In fact, in this mentality, 51 points is not much different than 100 points. You understand what I mean here? Okay. Okay, let's consider the mindset of trying to keep away from sin. This is a totally different attitude. 51 points is very dangerous because it is not too much away from sin. It is very close to sinning. You're basically a neighbor of sin. You have no margin left. One fall, you're gone. So to those who want to try to keep away from sin, every point upward is valuable. Every point increase is worth our effort because we want to get as far away from sin as possible. So now I hope you get the idea of the difference between the two. But unfortunately, many Christians are only taking the do not sin approach. And in this situation, many of us are tempted to live on the edge every day. In this situation, many of us are tempted to try to get as close to sinning as possible without actually sin. We all have the tendency to play as close as we can to the edge of disasters in many areas in our lives. We know where the yellow line is. We know that. But our tendency is to get as close, as close, as close to the line as possible. We dance on the edge of the line sexually, financially, or morally. How close to sin without sinning is the kind of way we live our lives, isn't it? Let's examine ourselves. Are we letting ourselves being deceived 
that way. Trying to get as close to sin as possible and thinking that this is not sinning. As a pastor, sometimes I, I have been asked questions about dating ethics. The most common question I get is, what can I do with my boyfriend or girlfriend that are okay? Like they never specify okay to whom. But just, is this okay to do this or do that? Like, is it okay to me or to your dad and mom? But of course, if they ask me, I would assume they mean that it is okay to God. Many of them know that sex before marriage is not okay. Well, if you don't, I'm telling you now, it's not okay to have sex before marriage. It's not okay to God. It's not okay to your dad and mom. It's not okay to me. not okay to your date. not okay to you. Oh, I was expecting an amen after this. But you guys are quiet. Okay. And then, after this, the, the word I get is, but, like, like, I hate this but. Like, I know we, we can't have sex before marriage, but, like, this is always something to follow up. Okay, the question always is, but what about this? What about that? What about kissing? What about holding hands? What about hugging? And so on. Like, I'm not going to be there. We know that it is not okay to have sex before marriage. But above that, what is okay? How intimate can we be? Let me tell you, the agenda behind these questions, in almost all cases, is to know how to get as close to sinning as possible without actually sin. If sin is anywhere below 50 point mark, then those questions are about where the 51 point mark is. But not only young people have this problem, to be fair. We all do. For example, Christian adults know that we should not gamble. But if you don't know that, I'm telling you now. But I always start asking things like, I buy 649. I don't think I'm going to win anyway. Like these questions drive me nuts. Like why would you buy it if you don't think you're going to win anyway? How about playing MJ? Like Mahjong. We just play for little money only. How about venture capital? How about day trading? How about options trading? And so on. All these kinds of things. I always got asked if, if these are okay to do. Well, I, I, I need to put a disclaimer out right now. Don't misunderstand me. I'm not trying to say that all those activities I mentioned just now were sins. No. I'm not trying to analyze each specific action, whether they're okay or not. Don't get me wrong. I'm here trying to critique, not on individual actions, but on the mindset, the foolish mindset of trying to get as close to sinning as possible. I mean, we're Christians. We bear the image of God. We are the temple, the dwelling of the Holy Spirit. We are the light and the salt of the world. We are Christ's ordained witnesses. Is that how we should live our lives? Come on. 
Are we hoping to get as much enjoyment from sin without displeasing God? Thinking that after flirting with sin, and then we go to God and He will say, Good for you, my child. Aren't we foolish to think that way? As a result, there is no line to draw. Sin cannot be defined by drawing a line thinking that below 50 would be a sin and above 50 would be okay. There's no such thing in God's eyes. Sin cannot be defined by listing all dating activities in a spectrum and then cut a line in the middle saying that whatever below the line would be considered sin and whatever below would be allowed. Don't be fooled. Sin does not work that way. That's why Jesus once said, For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, which are the scribes, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. Well, what kind of righteousness was of the Pharisees and the scribes? Their righteousness was, was the kind of drawing a line, the kind of trying not to sin, the kind to try to stay at the 51 point mark at least, or maybe 55 for them. So what kind of righteousness was Jesus referring to that surpasses that of the Pharisees and the scribes? He continues to say, You have heard that it was said to the people long ago, You shall not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. So in the category of murder, the Pharisees and the scribes had drawn a line over killing someone. So anything below, such as murder, massacre, or genocide, would be considered sin. However, anything above it, such as cursing others, hating others, shaming others, would be okay. But Jesus came and gave us the right attitude towards sin. And it is not about drawing a line. Jesus said, But I tell you, that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. And again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, Raka, is answerable to the court. And, and anyone who says, you fool, in original Greek is more, which gives the word moron, would be in danger of the fire of hell. Therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First, go and be reconciled to them. Then come back and offer your gift. In saying this, Jesus has removed the line that the Pharisees drew as a definition of sin. What Jesus was saying here is that in the category of murder, sin doesn't only mean killing someone. It also means nurturing your anger towards someone, hating someone, or even an unwillingness to reconcile with someone. Jesus denied any attempt to define sin by drawing a legalistic line. Jesus defined the, uh, denied the naive thought of trying to get as close to sinning as possible and thinking that God would be okay with it. He denied it outright. This attitude alone would be displeasing to God. The correct attitude towards sin is to get 
as far away from sin as possible. Don't get me wrong. I agree that an unwillingness to reconcile is not the same kind, the same as killing someone. Like I'm not here encouraging you the next time you hate someone, you may go, I might as well kill him. The same thing. No, no, no. But most murder attempts don't begin with a desire to kill someone. But begin with an maybe unresolved anger, uncontrolled hatred, or unwillingness to reconcile. Therefore, resolving your anger is a way to prevent murder. Proactively restoring relationship is an effective way to stay as far away from killing someone as possible. And this is the wisdom of Psalm 1. The wisdom to stay as far away from sin as possible. A way of living that does not walk on, stand on, or sit in the path of the wicked. This is what fearing God is about. But then, how can we stay away from sin? How do we know that we are actually running away from it instead of towards it? Well, the second verse gives us further wisdom on this topic. It says, Blessed are those whose delight is in the law of the, of the Lord and who meditate on his, word, on, on his law day and night. If you want to stay as far away from sin as possible, you need to delight in God's law and meditate on it day and night. I think most of you would agree with me that we should read and meditate God's word, the Bible, right? But reading God's word day and night could be a problem. I mean, day and night, isn't it too demanding? It's already hard to get to, to some, sometimes, you know, already hard enough to get Christians to read daily bread, which takes like something like 30 seconds to read every day. Well, let's not panic and get scared by the term day and night. Let's not get panicked first. I mean, our resolve, our determination are not as bad as we think. We can do many things day and night. For example, Korean drama. I heard that some Christians can finish watching 40 episodes of a Korean drama in two days. I mean, scare me to death. Two days? 40 episodes? And not just watching TV. There are people who can play video games day and night. Facebook or texting day and night. You name it. Why we can do those, 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 those things day and night? Because we find delight in them. But when it comes to reading God's Word, our delight would seem to turn into reluctance and procrastination. How can we be like that? How can we not repent from how we prioritize our desires? How are we going to reboot not just our church spiritual condition, but our own? If we are to continue the way that we do not take delight in God's Word, in fact, the psalmist continues to describe this God-fearing and God-word-desiring life in verse 3. He says, 
That person is like a tree planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in season and whose leaf does not wither. Whatever they do prospers. Well, that's the problem. Who would want to be a tree nowadays? And we don't even want to be described like a tree. I mean, you look at a girl and go, wow, you look like a tree. That probably won't make you very popular. But in a biblical sense, tree is a good thing. In the Bible, from the Garden of Eden in Genesis to the new heaven and new earth in Revelation, tree is most often associated with life. Tree means life. Also, if we look at the English word tree, its old English form is written as this. T-R-E-O-W, pronounced as troll. And this Old English word troll has two meanings. It could mean tree. It also could mean truth. It means that if we fear God, we stay from sin and desire God's word, we will have truth in us and we will be as steadfast as a tree spiritually. And the promise is that whatever we do prospers. And here, don't misunderstand that if you read the Bible, you will be promoted, you will, your investment will earn great return, and your wishes will come true. No. That's not what it promises here. You know, a tree doesn't do much. A tree won't invest. A tree won't seek to be the regional director of the forest. All a tree does is to bear fruits. Whatever they do, prospers means that they will bear fruit. You will bear fruit. If you fear God, stay away from sin as far as possible and desire God's word, you will be steadfast and will bear fruit. And there is no other shortcut or alternate way. If you don't, well, the psalmist warns us that we will be like chaff that the wind blows away. Being like chaff in God's eyes is sad. Chaff is empty and super light. So it will get blown away by the wind. Chaff is worthless and useless. Chaff is a strong contrast to a tree. A tree is steadfast, but a chaff can be blown away. A tree bears fruit. But a chaff is empty. And this psalm ends in this contrast. What the psalmist intended to do is to lay out the differences between a tree and a chaff and let his readers to make their own choices. What would you choose today, brothers and sisters? Keep on dancing near the line? Keep on living the righteousness of the Pharisees and the scribes? Or would you start living the righteousness that Jesus desires us to pursue? How would you define your relationship with your Bible today? A delightful relationship? Or something else? Brothers and sisters, let's, let us all be wise people of God. And don't fool ourselves thinking that there are ways to please God other than what the scribe or 
prescribed here in Psalm 1. So I pray that, that God's word today, God's wisdom today will enlighten us. Will, will encourage us. And his word will redeem our soul from being lukewarm and being indifferent. Let us all pray together. Dear God of wisdom, our Father in heaven, we thank you for revealing to us your will and your righteousness. Save us from a lukewarm soul and from a heart of wrath. Grant us a heart of flesh that will beat with your rhythm. Give us courage to stay away from sin as far as possible so that we will be all the more steadfast and fruit-bearing for your glory. As we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.